Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of people who study computational neuroscience. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. I'm Connor. And the topic for this episode is computational psychiatry. Um, I think we should maybe start by explaining why this is kind of a, a topic to be discussed as something separate from computational neuroscience because someone sitting next to you on a plane and asking you what you do a lot of times if you say you're a neuroscientist people will start asking you about like alzheimer's or autism or or diseases of the mind like that and um so it might not be clear to everyone that psychiatry is you know the field that studies those kinds of things whereas neuroscience uh frequently studies kind of the the functioning brain and how things are processed normally and so uh, we're going to be talking about psychiatry, which is something separate from neuroscience for most people who study neuroscience. Um, and so there is kind of this, this field of computational psychiatry that is a bit separate from computational neuroscience in, in that it's explicitly dealing with um, diseases and how to treat patients and how to diagnose patients. But specifically for psychiatric illness, right? So like, I mean, the, the, the distinctions are even maybe finer than you're suggesting because like within medical schools, there's like neurology departments and psychiatry departments. And so like, I don't know, probably, I, I don't know exactly where, I mean, none of us are doctors, right? But like, I don't know. And so I don't know exactly where the distinctions would, would be, but like Alzheimer's maybe is, is accepted to be more of a brain-based disease, and while like all psychiatric illnesses in some sort of philosophical sense stem from the brain, like most of the way these things are treated is kind of divorced from a mechanistic understanding of what's going on in the brain when these things fail. So like depression or schizophrenia or, or other such diseases, like they're, they're clearly grounded in the brain and some of the treatments, like if you're using like psychopharmaceuticals, uh, you're taking you're taking drugs that are supposed to be treating these diseases or illnesses, but the the sort of basis of that mechanistically in terms of how it interacts with the brain is is not or arises from activity of the brain or misactivity of the brain is not really well understood. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, neurology and psychiatry would be the two fields of medical science that deal with the nervous system in some way, and neurology, you know is, I think, associated with things that we have a more physical understanding of, like the peripheral nervous system or something like that. But I don't, I don't think that people would actually say that like psychiatry is the study of nervous system diseases that we don't understand yet. Oh, right. I don't think anyone would word it that way, right? <laughs> That's just you being an arrogant fucker. <laughs> um, yeah, and so it's... Uh, Obviously, psychiatry has been around for a long time, and computational neuroscience has been around, I don't know, for a few decades at least. But the, the field of computational psychiatry is actually like, quite recent um, as being kind of labeled as its own field and having any uh, like official designations or anything like that. Um, and I think that also speaks to the fact that neuroscience and psychiatry are pretty different. The idea that we could have computational neuroscience for a while, but computational psychiatry never really came up. Um, it might even seem kind of like a, 
almost controversial idea for neuroscientists or, or like a, a novel idea for neuroscientists that you would attempt to study psychiatric illness from sort of a computational modeling perspective. I don't think that would like, that doesn't strike everyone as so natural, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that there are good reasons why it's somewhat recent. And you could argue that maybe it's even still premature, at least for some of the goals that, that they have in the field. And we'll get into to what falls under the umbrella of computational psychiatry. Um, but yeah, so kind of to, to demonstrate how new it is, um, there was a somewhat recent center devoted to it that's kind of joint between um, University College London and a Max Planck Center in Berlin, and that opened in 2014, uh, and that's the Center for Computational Psychiatry and Aging. They kind of focus on dementia and developmental aspects of psychiatric illness. Um, there is a recent journal that hasn't even published anything yet, but it opened for submissions for articles in June of 2016. That is the um, MIT Press's Journal of Computational Psychiatry. Uh, and then also, so we read a, a paper that was in uh, Trends in Cognitive Science, and that paper was published in 2012, and it refers to, it's just called Computational Psychiatry, and it refers to it as a new field. So that's kind of the timeline that we're dealing with. So it's it seems quite new. I guess we could try to define what we understand um, as computational psychiatry. There are at least two, I think, definitions that came up in the two review articles that we read. So, Connor, what do you think the definition of computational psychiatry is? Um, well, the two definitions, I think, that I kind of gleaned from these two reviews, one is the one that Grace mentioned called computational psychiatry, where Peter Diane is the last author, um, and the other is this one um, in Nature, Neuroscience. And I think the two definitions kind of mirror these two no uses of the word computational in computational neuroscience. So one is just kind of um, a definition where you're studying psychiatry using quote-unquote computational tools, which can be a kind of broad blanket-ish term for the use of like simulation and mathematics and statistics and machine learning to study the problem. And then the other definition might be something along the lines of trying to understand psychiatric illnesses as pathologies of the actual computations that the brain itself is attempting to perform. Um, so Peter Diane made that, um, Peter Diane referred kind of explicitly to um, computational psychiatry, I think, as mainly this kind of second approach, trying to study um, the computations the brain is performing and how they kind of might be pathological in some in psychiatric disease. Um, so, like understanding, for example, you know, anxiety as arising from malfunctioning learning, where like learning is a type of computation, say. Um, and in the Nature uh, Neuroscience Review, they were kind of also talking about just, you know, using modern sort of data analytic techniques to um, classify and define symptoms and psychiatric diseases in like new ways. They also refer to that as kind of computational, whereas you're not necessarily trying to um, understand the disease in a, as a malfunctioning of a computation. I guess I would say that both of the reviews also um, allowed for 
the type of work that tries to build a mechanistic model of like what's happening with different neural populations. I don't know if that would fall cleanly into to either of the ones that you mentioned. Right, yeah, I guess that's true. So yeah, so it actually, I mean, I feel like it lines up with different categories of computational neuroscience. You know, we can kind of analyze data or model the computations we think the brain is doing or model what we think neurons are doing to implement computations. I actually kind of enjoyed that these articles laid out these distinctions and the different realms of computational work because you don't actually see that explicitly acknowledged in computational neuroscience, I feel like. And I guess it, it makes sense that like if you're writing an article that's introducing a field to computational work, you need to kind of explicitly say what computational work is. Yeah, so for psychiatrists or whatever, when they're first hearing about this, the natural question would be like, well, why is something computational going to help me? Like, what does that even mean? What, what, are, you, what are you claiming you're going to be able to do with computational tools? Or what's, what's the benefit of bringing them to this field? And so spelling out that like one way of thinking about the disorders is that they are sort of issues concerning appropriate or healthy computations in a brain uh, or, or you know you can characterize the variability of ways in which people's behavior corresponds to different kinds of computations in certain settings um, and then uh, characterize the sort of distribution of those sets of traits uh, sort of using machine learning tools and that this might be more maybe objective than, than other forms of diagnosis. These are, these are the kinds of things that, you know, start making it concrete. So maybe we should, we should just spell that out a, a bit more, right? So yeah. um, I guess there's sort of, there, there's, uh, I mean, I've sort of extracted maybe like two motifs in this kind of work, and we can talk about how, how these are concretely uh, done. But so the first kind of thing is right now, and, and this is sort of in the context of this work so far, it's, it's admittedly kind of simple tasks, but you take some task that you can subject uh, a person to, and it's like a super simple task, like learn how to solve this very simple game, or like, you know, you, you do something where there's like, you have two choices, and then each of those two choices gives you one of two outcomes probabilistically, and you just have to learn what choices to make to maximize reward, or for some other kind of setting in that space, but some, some very simple tasks like this where you're making a small number of choices and there are a small number of outcomes. And then it's just the rate at which you learn that thing is measured and a few other properties of your behavior are measured. And basically you can fit a decision-making model, like a super simple decision-making model to people's choices in this setting. And you can look at the parameters of that model and you can see that sort of different clusters of parameters in that model correspond to sort of different cognitive behavioral decision-making phenotypes um, or groups of behavior. And then you can, you can sort of view those as either like diagnosis clusters or like symptom clusters. And this, this provides like another diagnostic tool instead of like surveys or, uh, you know, patient uh, interviews. To, to diagnose people. It, you know, rather than having someone come in and say, like, I've been having trouble with, like, being really impulsive and I can't, you know, focus or something like that, you can, I mean, you can have someone come in and they say that, but 
in order to kind of really probe what the problem is rather than just taking, you know, their self-description, uh, you can have them to play these types of games and actually see if, you know, when they're playing these games, does the way that they play them actually fit impulsivity um, or, you know, how do they compare to other types of people who have played them? Um, and so you can you can extract models that describe their behavior in the game and compare what their behavior looks like to people who show certain uh, other clusters of symptoms that may be all the same disease or something like that. So the, so that's like the first motif is like fitting people's behavior when you put them in some simple setting. And that's kind of like another diagnostic tool in addition to these surveys. And like the other motif is actually then like doing kind of large scale data mining, let's say, on a whole bunch of people's uh, parameters that are extracted from these tasks. So if you have, because it's now like a task, I mean, you could, you could do this with survey data in the past, but this is like a different way of doing it. Instead of getting a thousand or 2000 people to take a survey and then looking at patterns in the data, here you can take, have a thousand or 2000 or more people on the internet place basically a little game. And uh, depending on how they play that game, you can sort of cluster their, the people into different groups or look for trends or patterns in dis- description, mathematical or sort of quantitative descriptions you extract from their behavior. I mean, and you can do this, I think, importantly, because this comes up a lot um, in these articles about the field, is the benefit of combining different, um, what would be called phenotyping, like figuring out the way people behave or what traits they have. You can have people play these games and get uh, mathematical descriptions of their behavior, but you can also combine that with survey data. And then you just kind of have more inroads to, uh, you know, ways to describe people and to cluster people. And then, you know, if you um, want to go even further, they talk about combining it with fMRI data on patients or EEG data. So you're actually using neural markers combined with survey data and behavioral data. Maybe we could talk about this eLife paper just as like a specific example, just to make it concrete. Sure, sounds good. So why, you want to summarize that? First? Sure, so this is a paper um, where the, the senior author is Nathaniel Daw from NYU. It's called Characterizing a Psychiatric Symptom Dimension Related to Deficits in Goal-Directed Control. So the way they kind of... Um, describe their paper in the abstract is basically they identify something called goal-directed control, which is supposed to be a kind of, um, well, I guess goal-directed control would be a type of behavior, say. Um, and the idea is that people vary in terms of how much, you know, goal-directed control they exhibit in a variety of situations, say. Um, and that you can measure this um, by having people perform certain kinds of tasks and then you kind of, there's some kind of computational theory, um, learning theory sort of behind this where you can kind of think of people as using different learning strategies and then somehow the amount of one learning strategy versus the other that people use um, is kind of what you're calling or goal direct control or what you think um, can be a measure of how much goal-directed control they exhibit, say. Um, so that's like, I mean, just roughly it kind of is something something related to like, related to like how habitual are they versus how much can they kind of use complex models of the world to exert sort of top-down control over their decisions. 
maybe counter their habits sometimes. So, so this notion of goal direct control, um, and the idea, I guess, is that people have kind of thought that uh, variability in terms of goal direct control is related to um, a variety of psychiatric disorders. Um, but the problem that they point to is that, right, so people kind of have thought that this, you know, deficits in in goal-direct control um, can be associated with disorders like OCD and addiction. But a problem... Yeah. So that was, like, uh, th- that was kind of not immediately intuitive to me when they described that relationship. But I guess they're saying that if you don't have this goal-directed behavior, which I think... Uh, can kind of be called, you know, something similar to long-term planning or the ability to kind of, like, think of several steps to get to a goal Mm -hmm. um, based on some knowledge you have about the world. In the absence of the ability to do that, then people fall into repetitive behaviors, um, which I guess I never never considered something like OCD as due to the absence of of goal-directed behavior, but more kind of like the the presence of a strong urge or something yeah. like that. So I it just it wasn't immediately I mean, obvious. To I me guess that these things were even related. But. That itself is kind of a finding that is supposed to be based on previous literature. So I think in previous work from this group and others, they're kind of yeah. This is based on a sort of previous claim that they have made, which is that measuring this goal direct control um, thing in certain tasks kind of is a useful um, phenotype to look at and can and kind of is correlated with having things like OCD and addiction. But yeah, it's not like, it's not clear that it should be, um, it's not clear that it should be like strongly related, say, to OCD. It seems like OCD has other characteristics, like like you mentioned. Um, and so that's kind of sort of part of what they then talk about, which is that um, deficits in goal-direct control actually are seen in lots of other um, psychiatric conditions apart from addiction and OCD. So in some way, it's not a very, it's not very specific. So um, what they do essentially is use um, this kind of online thing we've been talking about. They use uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk actually to have many, many people both play this game that is used to assess how much goal-directed control they have and then also to fill out lots of surveys and report, self-report, right, um, symptoms, like kind of answer questions related that are supposed to be a measure of how um, compulsive they are or, and various other kind of things like this. Um, and then instead of just, so then what they do is they actually kind of use some like ana- data analysis techniques to find which combinations of um, different behavioral patterns as assessed from the from the questionnaire are most strongly um, correlated with or predicted by um, variability in a person's, you know, goal-directed control, essentially. Um, Do you want to elaborate? Well, yeah. So people take these surveys and they self-report. And then, again, they're throwing in like an actual measure of behavior to be able to assess. I mean, I feel like the, the combination of behavior and self-assessment is meant to provide like an objective fact check against people's self-report in a way. I mean, that's not what they focus on in this article. But um, then, yeah, the idea is that they then want to look at what the self-reported patterns of um, traits, 
how those relate to the actual behavior on the task. And I guess the idea is that uh, the, the kind of part that lines up most with what these other reviews talk about as being a benefit of uh, advanced computational approach is that they have this survey, which has, you know, hundreds of questions, and they're kind of able to do some kind of dimensionality reduction on it to kind of get at um, the main components, kind of uh, patterns across all of these questions that capture something relevant for the prediction of goal-directed behavior. Right. And so it seems useful, right? I mean, so in the end, then they have, they sort of, the point is like, if you have a lot of, if you have certain kind of deficit in this goal direct control thing, it increases the likelihood that a person will have like a variety of different disorders. But, and so in a way you can think of them as just kind of doing like a change of variables in sort of disorder space. And they're trying to find um, whichever, a, a kind of a new mixture of um, symptoms as as like um, yeah. So this uh, this gets gets to something that's like almost a philosophical point, which is that it's not clear that diseases are like caused by the same thing. Like what people sort of in the taxonomy of disorders, what people will label a certain disorder may or may not actually be a like arise from the same sort of genetic or environmental abnormality. And depending on what people can measure, people have tend to recategorize things. So like back in the day when, you know, you would see an older person and they would, would sort of have gradual age-related cognitive decline, you might label all of those things dementia. I mean, I'm being a little haphazard here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as we, as we kind of get a better sense of why some of these different disorders arise, we maybe have greater resolution to like the kinds of age-related cognitive decline we label. And so there's like subcategories or we label Alzheimer's a certain category because it, it arises from a certain cluster of causes that we maybe know a little bit more about or something like this. And in, in this case, uh, maybe OCD was called one thing, but because to a certain observer or a certain set of observers historically, they viewed it as one thing. And I mean, there's probably other good reasons why it is called one thing. And I'm not trying to like, you know, rewrite the whole literature there. But now with this uh, sort of new measurement technique, a task that has like some computational motivation where there's like a theory associated with it, where you can measure a certain sort of type in that task. Maybe it's natural to think of that type as somehow relevant or fundamental and re-taxonomize certain disorders around these these new measurable things. Yeah, I feel like this um, this paper kind of is trying to claim that they're kind of cleaning things up a bit in this direction. Like, it is the case that psychiatry seems to suffer from the fact that a lot of disorders have the same symptoms. I mean, not exactly the same, but there's a lot of overlapping symptoms and a lot of different disorders. And they're saying that, you know, getting this big data set of having a bunch of people online take surveys and, and do this behavior, they were able to tease things apart because their findings are that, you know, despite the fact that there were reports that um, anxiety and depression are also related to deficits in goal-directed behavior, they actually see that the impulsivity is like the major 
trait that relates to to changes in this goal-directed behavior on their task. And so, so I think they're they're trying to say that if you have enough data, you can kind of clean things up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, certainly it still requires that you believe that their task, their behavioral task, is an accurate uh, window into what we, like, if you have some colloquial notion or if you have some semi-formal but non-quantitative notion of goal-directed control or goal-directed behavior as like a clinical psychiatrist, if you believe that their task is measuring the same kind of thing that you're thinking of when you think of goal-directed behavior, yeah. um, then how this task correlates with other things, like maybe this big online data set serves as somehow maybe more of a, a bit more objective of uh, a way of uh, ca- capturing that pattern of, of that behavior um, relative to sort of a person's impression, like a, a psychiatrist or a set of psychiatrists' impressions when they talk to lots of patients. Right. Yeah. A thing I liked about this paper on a very sort of loose level is the idea that they're using healthy patients, like norm, sort of normal, the normal population, kind of, the general population, and they're measuring variability along various dimensions of that are self-reported um, and looking for structure in that space. Um, and uh, sort of, I mean, like, you know, as opposed to just kind of taking pe- people who are kind of like ab- aberrant in some way, quote unquote, um, and talking about them as somehow like totally distinct from the rest of the population. So like you can imagine, like if you had mass, all infinite data, you could just kind of sort of just measure and kind of quantify human behavior in general across the whole population. And then you would just be able to extract the structure of it. And maybe a lot of diseases can be seen as just kind of outlierish um, in that space. Or potentially there are some that are like separate clusters totally by themselves and so forth. And I don't know, it's just kind of a, I like the idea of a more, right, the history of how we study mental illness is kind of weird and associated with lots of things like, taboos and like people being scary and spooky i like this kind of clinical cold data analytic approach in general to like defining mentalness i just enjoy that maybe i'm creepy for enjoying it well i like the idea that your complaint was that psychiatry wasn't clinical and cold enough yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's it's not that it's it's not that they look at you with a medical gaze or you know sort of dehumanize you it's that uh (laughs) It's that they were stigmatizing you too much through... Uh, With their passions, certain, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, um, yeah, I mean, another thing, though, that this... I don't know, kind of... kind of, The interesting thing about doing this in a very behavioral way is it, it feels like it mirrors very closely the way people already think about what you can glean from behavior, like what you click on or what you like on the internet or whatever right is giving people information about you and you know like you can guess if someone's a man or a woman based on like what kind of stuff they've liked on facebook right i mean it's sort of uh you know obviously not perfectly but like statistically speaking yeah well this kind of feels like in uh in the nature neuroscience review and i don't know if we said the authors of that it's hughes maya and frank um but uh, they were talking about how, like, okay, so why is computational psychiatry becoming a thing now? And 
the reasons that they gave were like, well, there's a lot more data available now and like the computational models and computing power is better. And that's like the same reasons that were given for why machine learning and deep learning are taking off. And that's what's powering like the, you know, advertisers ability to know things about you based on your online behavior. Right. I mean, it obviously brings up all sorts of creepy possibilities, you know, when, yeah, internet giants have all the information and, you know, Google has some project where they're like are collecting genetic as part of one of their things where they're collecting like gen, gen, like genomes of lots of the normal population, which is cool and could obviously be used for all kinds of like interesting things. Um, but yeah. Maybe they'll be able to tell if you're like, whatever, if you have some mental illness and then do terrible things to you based on that or something. Not that, not that Google <laughs> seems to want to do terrible things to people. They're just going to show you specific advertisements for it. Yeah, or I don't know, whatever. Um, so yeah, there's so th- this side of things seems more related to the idea that computational psychiatry can use a lot of data to help with... Um, kind of just the actual definition of diseases yes. to actually cluster things in a more formal way rather than having people say like, well, I see some people who are like, you know, they have hallucinations and they're anxious. So I'm going to say that they're schizophrenic and there's other people who are depressed and anxious. So that's a different thing. Um, so it's it's meant to kind of formalize the definitions of, um, of these different disorders. There was also, um, the review was talking about kind of removing the concept of a disorder at all, at least like a a labeled disorder. So they were just going, or people have um, modeled symptoms as a network. So there's just like nodes in the network that represent different symptoms like anxiety or um, problem sleeping or something like that. And just kind of defining, you know, people as being in a kind of symptom state and doing network analysis on this to see how you could, um, you know, transfer between states. And so, because this makes sense to me, because not only are there overlaps between the symptoms that show up in different diseases, but these symptoms are clearly have kind of causal relationships. So, you know, if you're sleep deprived, you will probably be fatigued and maybe you like won't go out and then you'll feel like socially isolated or something like you can imagine how these things relate to each other and how they can interact with each other even without the need to kind of label a cluster of them as a certain disease especially when we don't have quite enough knowledge to to say that we know one you know where these symptoms stem from and so we can call that a disease that has a certain uh source so the this idea of modeling things is just a a network of symptoms seems kind of more honest for our current state of understanding of a lot of them. Yeah. So there is though a, a, like a trade-off where I think it's kind of assumed in, in this work that you're not just getting another sort of description. Like it's not just another sort of, right. I, I put superficial in kind of quotes, like kind of description, like a survey. Like if you ask people, are they impulsive? And they say they're impulsive and then you label them as impulsive. Like, that's kind of okay, but it's not like, I don't know, it, it's just like you ask them something and there was a description involved. These behaviors could just get at that. It's like you have a task that measures impulsivity and then you call the people impulsive if they score high on that task. Right. And I like, I think that's what psychiatry has been doing for a while. Yeah, there's right? a grander aim here somehow. 
Exactly. So psychiatry for a long time has had tasks to measure things in, in addition to surveys and, and stuff like this, right. where if people score certain ways on tasks, like an IQ test, for example, which is not just a survey, like you actually have to do something and you're assessed yep. on it. Uh, the grander aim here is that these these kinds of tasks, these kinds of games that are, are given to the to the people are especially informative about the sort of, let's say, cognitive mechanism. Or so we hope, right? Yeah, that's the that's the hope, right? I mean, yeah. is that there's something about the computation performed by the person in order to solve the problem yeah. is informative, semi-mechanistically. Yeah, so we have into, some sort of, that's like the kind of Diane notion of computational. You have some notion of the actual, like, sort of computational level mechanisms that happen in the brain normally. And so, like, the kind of long-term aim would be that you would find ways of measuring behavior um, and kind of have these behavioral quote or sort of slash computational phenotypes that would really be separate diseases in the sense that there would be actually distinct um, computational mechanisms and kind of therefore physical neural mechanisms underlying the different diseases, which would allow you, if you really understood them, to design really targeted treatments, right? And I think that's a cool prospect, but I think the risk, and especially with very simple tasks, uh, is that this is a rebranding, in a sense, of more, you know, old school psych tests or psych assessments. Right. uh, With with a new taxonomy, because the tasks are a bit different, and with more quantitative formalism or jargon behind it. And so that is the risk. And I think to demonstrate that these are superior to the older ones, you have to probably demonstrate sort of more clinical efficacy or utility of these new distinctions. Right. And like they have to kind of on some longer timescale play nice with the sort of computational narratives that we develop about like how the brain actually works. Um, So whereas the sort of old psych assessments didn't maybe do that as much. But I mean, like, I don't know. On some level, it does feel like in the olden days, people thought that they were developing assessments which got at the meat of what was really going on in the brain as well. Yeah. Um, So we always think that we're, like, doing it right. Or it goes in and out of fashion, maybe. But, you know. So I I don't know. That's, That's, you know, I mean... Yeah. I mean, an actually distinct thing, which is just separate from this whole computational phenotyping type of discussion is just the use of new modern measurements, right? So you can just like do a bunch of EEG stuff for a bunch of MRI measurements on people and then use those things as like regressors um, or, you know, variables in classifiers for, you know, detecting whether or not someone or classifying someone as having or not having or the degree to, you know, degree to which they have or do not have different kind of psychiatric disorders. So that's like a, that's a different thing that's actually new and kind of, but it doesn't, doesn't kind of really rely as much on any notions of computational theory, the theory of cognition or anything like that. Yeah. And I think another important thing is that like, so even very recently and currently, a lot of studies will say, okay, I'm going to study something about autism. I'm going to find people who 
are autistic and I'm going to give them some task and I'm going to find a control group that isn't and I'm going to give them some task. And so it's this like uh, study that's basically just there is this disease and there's not. And if you have data sets that are large enough and include enough variety, you can study all of the diseases at once. And I think that that's what can lead to better um, kind of a, a more informed way of carving them up. You have a fuller understanding of their interactions and what really looks like something separate. Yeah, but the, I mean, going back to Connor's point, I mean, I, I think there's one view of disease that like, yeah, there's, there's lots of variability in the healthy population and some people are so extreme in certain axes or certain dimensions that they should be labeled as disease because they're outliers. So like everyone's a little bit depressed kind of on some level. But or to some extent, you may have a biased sample. <laughs> or pe- or people are slightly depressed, uh, or some people are not at all depressed. That 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 variable ranges. And if you're like very depressed, then you you, you it's 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 a clinical issue. But the, another view, right, is that uh, that some of the people are sort of particularly extreme, not because they're part of the natural variation that deviates too far by chance. Yeah, uh, or by random variation, but because there's some fundamental cause underlying uh, why they're extreme. But I think uh, I like when you say that I understand what you mean. But then when I think about it, it's like okay, fundamental cause. What does that mean? Well, like a you genetic know? mutation or something okay. like so that. Okay, so but yeah. so because I like obviously we don't just mean that there's something different or a about their brains. Life incident. I mean, it, because it's, everyone it's, has different brains, yeah. and so it's not just like their brain structure is different. No, no. So yeah. it has to be something. Let's say there's some genetic or a set of genetic causes it's like or, discontinuously you know, it's like discontinuously different in some space right or like in every yeah. in some irreducibly kind of not connected in yeah. some appropriate space of brain structure or something um, so but getting back to the, this point though like if you were to take a set of people potentially even a large set of people online kind of randomly and give them tasks you might not get at disease under under that notion i mean this is not like this is not fundamental to computational psychiatry but this is just sort of a side point yeah, yeah. if you want to like characterize the space of sort of psychiatric health and disease it might not be sufficient to take a, a random sample of even a rather large number of people because if a certain disease is relatively rare yeah you you might, you might only get a handful of people with that disorder and so the, the sort of standard style of of assessing of getting two groups equal sizes, one that's diseased and one that's not diseased with a certain disease, like can be necessary if the, those people don't occur with much frequency in the natural population. Not if, sure. if you get like kind of really massive online data sets, of course, you're going to get, you'll overcome this problem by swamping it with numbers as well. I do wonder if the, if it really is going to switch to a lot of these um, online data sets. I mean, people have talked about how it's, um, the fact that most psychological studies are done on undergrads at like elite Western universities yeah. creates kind of a weird sense of, of what is human. <laughs> and I, it could be the same. I mean, people who are willing to sit on yeah. uh, Mechanical Turk and do menial tasks for hours might be a very particular subset of the population. They're all obsessive. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I just love clicking things. Yeah. I think another thing, this is like slightly switching. We can come back if you... Um, that I liked, just a thought that occurred to me was, you know, um, in the Nature Neuroscience Review, and it was talked about in the in the uh, um, in the Diane Review also was. I mean, just this 
you know, theories like reinforcement learning or like sort of statistical learning theory, you know, things about Bayesian type stuff where you should kind of keep track of priors over, you know, aspects of the environment and these kinds of things and how those different things should inform learning. Just kind of um, somewhat formal characterization of like what learning is and what sort of optimal things to do are in a different in a variety of different situations are. It's useful to, as a thought I had was like, um, you know, it's potentially useful to kind of try to understand, to have computational theories that describe how people actually learn and how those things are related, why they do it that way, quote unquote, or, you know, um, by having some say normative explanation, like they, people do it this way because evolution has designed it to do this way because that's the right way to do it or something. Um, Because... It seems like learning could potentially be very important, right? If you if you have a if, for example, it turns out that um, you know a lot of cases of anxiety are caused by some uh, imbalance, say in like serotonin or something, which means that and serotonin is involved in some learning system, and then you have kind of mal learning that causes anxiety. So like you've learned that the world, like, you know, learned helplessness as an example, right? You've sort of learned that the world is in fact very unpredictable and maybe the right, quote unquote, right thing to do is in fact, given that you've, this is what you think is the case, is to kind of become helpless. Um, You know, if you really think that such kind of mal learning is the cause of a disease, then it might be really important to actually give people a treatment, say that a corrects the serotonin imbalance if that's really the thing that's wrong in the brain but not just do that but combine that with the appropriate relearning and the relearning might be like really the kind of the most important thing and if you just gave them the if you just corrected the serotonin imbalance something and didn't have this relearning procedure it would be kind of nowhere near as effective um i don't know i hadn't quite thought about that before i'm sure psychiatrists and stuff think about this all the time but that yeah i think that um like people talk about um, cognitive behavioral therapy being uh, something that's very effective and usually it's um, or at least many times it's combined with like people taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication while going through like a very particular type of uh, behavioral therapy. I see. So I think I don't I don't think that that came from a computational model of learning. Yeah. I think that that was kind of trial and error. But you can imagine, right, trial and error. But you can imagine then if you had some like really thorough kind of theory of all the different kinds of learning that people can do, you'd be able to like better give them the, design. You, you give them the right cocktail of drugs to prime them for like new learning say, and controlled situations. Plus the right cocktail of like learning, uh, say, tasks or whatever i mean the thing that comes up in talking about this especially the idea that like you know there's some uh medications that can be given to to put them into a better learning state uh this is a, a problem that obviously comes up in psychiatry and any kind of translational science like it we need to know how learning works normally <laughs> and in the case of kind of playing with um neurotransmitter levels we would need to know on like a fairly detailed level because those things have hugely complicated interactions with each other and with different cell types and all kinds of things so it always seems like you know the idea that uh in psychiatry like neuroscience is just a sub problem you know it's like well we want to create treatments that will help people 
we'll create treatments that are based on some understanding of the brain. Oh, I guess we have to understand the brain. It, it, it makes it, it puts it in a very weird place because there is this pressure to kind of just uh, try to make things that work even without understanding. But obviously it seems like it would be better if there was understanding. At the same time, a lot of the neuropsychiatric pharmaceuticals are, you know, they're so crude in terms of what they do. You know, like SSRIs being this classic example, they just, you know, inhibit the reuptake of serotonin. And serotonin is like all over the brain from loads of animal studies. We know that it's involved in all kinds of different behaviors, um, does things in all, like has loads of different effects in all sorts of parts of the brain and so on. Um, And yet, like, it's used like for lots of different diseases in a way that's like kind of puzzling. So, like, it seems like there's so much room for... I mean, again, it's also kind of amazing that these things, even though they seem so crude, do actually help a lot of people. So that's also kind of interesting. But there just seems that there's so much room for improvement. I don't know. I'm, I'm I, this Reading these made me kind of vaguely optimistic that, you know, including any of this stuff kind of has to help, I guess. And there were some examples where yeah, they showed better results. Yeah, there's this... I mean, so kind of divorced from a mechanistic understanding of how things work they actually talk about using you know kind of machine learning style approaches just to be able to predict who will respond to certain treatments so if you uh so it's like known that people usually there will be some antidepressant that people respond to well but it's not the same for everyone and so they have to cycle through different drugs to find the one that works for an individual person but if you could feed into a model maybe, I don't know, maybe fMRI data, maybe behavioral data, something like that, uh, then you could predict what type of antidepressant a person will respond to best, best. And there's been successes in that, but that's, you know, there's no um, even attempt to understand why certain people respond better. It's just yeah. to figure out the mapping. And if you have enough data, you can do that. I mean, that seems like a great use of yeah. these kinds of tools, but it's, it's, yeah, not it's divorced yeah. from understanding. Right, yeah, that's like to- there's no computational understanding, and there's no, and there's definitely no neural understanding. It's just purely like let's analyze the data as best we can to figure out which features are going to predict outcome. I do sometimes feel like this is the sort of I don't know if it's the 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 dirty secret or or it's just like a, a reality of a lot of su- scientific subfields is that right these these kinds of more opaque methods uh tend to work be where a lot of the the practical gains come from yeah and then you know scientists do what they do because they're interested in getting understanding of the systems but in order to sort of leverage what's going on for any kind of applications it's often the case that these kinds of yeah opaque methods really yeah. really do the do the work sometimes even better than the sort of scientifically transparent approaches. This really reminded me actually on that note of for example for example like economics and it's I think it's a it's a good example to keep in mind to kind of inhibit oneself from sort of fetishizing quote unquote mechanistic theories if they're not actually useful except for just kind of being intellectually pleasing and, of course, paving the way for future understanding. But like in economics, for example, I mean, you know, as far as I understand, if you want to like open a, a quantitative hedge fund and make a whole lot of money, 
you're not going you're going to be using models right to try which is like applied economics applied <laughs> economics quote unquote right so you know you're trying to understand a piece of the economy uh, like a market and what those people use they definitely do not use the models that academic economists study they use like machine learning techniques that just throw in features of the data and try to predict prices of course and so on the other hand right the the academy in economics is kind of famously although i'm a little ignorant here so maybe i'm saying something totally wrong um sort of obsessed with mathematical beauty and like elegant theoretical explanations that build up from assumptions about the behavior of individuals to properties of whole economies and so forth that being said it is the case that like central banks and so on do actually use such models um big but big computational versions of those models like huge ones with lots of parameters that they fit and so on so that's goes into the kind of domain of um the more machine learning type thing but some kind of in between but yeah just another example and like that you know it's a good example to bear in mind because like everybody complains all the time about bloody economists being away with the fucking fairies um and being obsessed with things that nobody cares about when we just want to like make the thing work properly you know and the hedge funds the people who are making lots of money are using precisely these opaque methods to like make lots of money because <laughs> they work so you're siding with the hedge fund people? well i think they're smarter but you know <laughs> that's why they're winning yeah i guess that is uh a very explicit example of something that plays out on a much more subtle scale in neuroscience versus psychiatry. (laughs) (laughs) Although I guess, no, I mean, there is a pretty direct comparison because pharmaceutical companies are interested in whatever works and not necessarily why. Yeah. And I think from the perspective of people inside academia, it, it, it isn't really perceived that pharmaceutical companies are doing sort of fundamental science really so much as they're doing empirical assessment of different approaches yeah um which i imagine is is somewhat similar to the you know kind of machine learning engineering that gets done when people are trying to uh figure out how markets work and stuff for the purposes of finance i mean it reminds me i heard of some guy who works for a pharmaceutical company once just say like that the propositions that come out of translate translational neuroscience like people who are using you know model animal models to propose targets for drugs are usually just disastrously bad so it's like this attitude where they kind of are annoyed by the scientists and then like the scientists are smug and they're like oh those people are not real scientists um it's funny as well because it reminds me of uh there's actually this thing i just mentioned there's actually a term for that in economics like i mean i think they just call it like the market test it's like your theory is no good if nobody's using it to make money basically, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. <laughs> so in, in this context, your, your sort of neuroscience or psychiatric theory is not useful if it's not curing patients yeah. or something like well, that. Well, I think you could also use making money. Yeah, if a pharmaceutical <laughs> company money. is not making a lot of money using it, then, <laughs> then which is sort of a sad it. state of That's affairs, right? It's not like, because it's not, you know, well, but I think it's a terrible, it's actually, you know, this is a, an interesting political point, right? Because it's a terrible measure i think because pharmaceutical companies don't make money by curing the greatest number of diseases possible they cure the diseases that rich people have or that people who can pay to have their diseases cured have so there's like a bias (laughs) yeah and a lot of times they uh 
will find, I mean, they kind of turn a side effect of a drug into um, the main effect by rebranding it. Yeah. Like, there's all these commercials lately about if you have, like, kind of what would seem like fatal dry eye based on how dramatic these commercials are. <laughs> but <laughs> I have to imagine it was just like they were trying to make a drug for something else. People said, like, this makes my eyes really watery. And they're like, well, let's sell it to people who have dry eye. <laughs> That's brilliant. First, let's tell people that dry eye is like an actual condition that requires a prescription. Yeah, <laughs> and then... yeah exactly. Uh, people. But so to transfer from talking about how there's no mechanistic understanding to the modeling of mechanisms, um, because this is actually something that is considered part of the computational psychiatry effort, is the idea that you can um, build you know, neural circuit models that are meant to, to actually be describing something that's happening in the brain of someone with some psychiatric disorder. Mm. Um, so some of the examples that they give are, so um, in computational neuroscience, widely uh, there's you know the use of these things called attractor models. They're used to model working memory a lot. And so the idea is that if you have this uh, model network of neurons and they're all connected to each other and you give an input to this network, uh, so it's kind of just activating some subset of these neurons, you can then remove the input and those neurons will remain active. And so this is kind of supposed to be like memory because you can kind of show someone something, take it away, and they can still remember what they were just shown because you have the same pattern of neural activity. And so um, this is used to model uh, a lot of different things, apparently, related to psychiatry because... um, you can kind of change parameters in the model that could represent certain types of neurotransmitter receptors and you can make people less able or make the model, you know, less good at remembering. Um, And so, for example, I think in schizophrenia, there's been documented uh, evidence of a decrease in NMDA receptors on inhibitory cells. And if you, you know, perturb the model in a way that is meant to be analogous to that kind of thing, you can get um, worse working memory in these models. Uh, So this would be an example of trying to explain neurally, mechanistically, a symptom of a disease using something that is correlated with incidence of that disease. Um, I think it... I think this is the the part of computational psychiatry that probably feels most premature. Yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, because, I mean, people do use these these models for working memory um, in computational neuroscience, but I don't think that people really feel like their connection to behavior is so direct. Mm. Because usually when you're using these models to, to study something that was found in animals, you're not trying to necessarily match a lot of the animal's behavior you have actual recordings from the neurons and you're just trying to match the neurons in your model to the neurons in the animal's brain and that's a very you know that's a clearer cleaner connection than behavior to neural activity in your model yeah it's also i don't know it's just i feel like when I maybe I'm just biased, but when I read a statement about like NMDA receptors or something, well, no, I guess because that's just about slowness, isn't it? Yeah. When when you well, read this is the issue though, there's there's a lot of different ways to model, you know, the effects of changing NMDA receptor numbers. Yeah. So 
there's a lot of uh, the the correspondence between what's found in the data and how you manipulate the model is obviously a little messy. Yeah, I mean, we have a really calm. I wouldn't be so I wouldn't be so harsh. I would just maybe say that the gap, the sort of in terms of current science, the explanatory gap between individual neurons and populations of neural activity is still not well bridged. Populations of neural activity to simple behaviors is not well bridged. Simple behaviors to cognitive disorders is not well bridged. And so to to hope that with the current levels of knowledge, you can go all the way from uh, receptors to disorder seems like there's a compounding errors problem to me. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that's why so that's why I, f- I feel okay with the, you know, model neuron to data neuron equivalence and that's like that's the research that I do. I build these kinds of models and try to fit them to actual neural data. So I hope that I'm okay with that. <laughs> um but yeah, to go all the way to like the complex set of behaviors that is schizophrenia. I mean, technically, they're trying to understand one symptom of it, but they're making this, you know, they're using, they're motivated by the fact that schizophrenic patients have this NMDA receptor change. I think it, it certainly seems like psychiatry is, in an interesting way, kind of, they're most focused or historically have been most focused on some of the, like, smallest scale mechanisms, you know, things like receptors on neurons or neurotransmitters, specific neurotransmitter levels, or genes. And I feel like that feels strange when, you know, you're in neuro- neuroscience and you see the full range of the field because most of computational neuroscience, or at least a lot of it, a lot of the mainstream computational neuroscience would be more comparable comparable to what's called systems neuroscience, where you're looking at large populations of neurons in certain brain areas as an animal performs a very simple task. And that seems more related to behavior that would be of interest to psychiatrists. But that level of modeling rarely cares about genes or receptor types. And so it seems like the history of psychiatry, the historical approach, makes this huge leap from like really small scale all the way up to really complicated behavior. I mean, I think a lot of it is geared by an an eye towards interventions. I mean, yeah. in the sure, 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 yeah. Like in the earlier days of psychiatry. I mean, if, if we talk like you know, I guess like a hundred years ago or even a little less. You know, using like electroconvulsive therapy or lobotomies or things like this to to sort of attempt to cure psychiatric illness, right? I mean, those were those were both premature, but at the same time, like they they thought they were being mechanistic at the time with those kinds of things like to say like oh there's a part of the brain in the front of the brain that if we get rid of it'll make these people more docile mm-hmm. like for the time that was supposed mechanism I mean, it was it was a crude mechanism but i mean it was, it was true as well i guess true but, yeah, yeah yeah but also like it didn't really do things for the right reasons and so you saw a correlation between something mechanistic and the behavioral changes and you can jump onto that. I mean, yeah, no, I think there's definitely a lot of reasons why it is this way, both because of um, the interventions that were available. Obviously, it's easier to give someone a pill that's going to kind of affect some global state of the brain rather than targeting specific patterns of neurons. Um, also, uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you, uh, 
the idea that you look for your keys under a street light because that's where the light is, not because that's where you lost your keys. Yeah. But um, because, you know, historically, what can you measure? I mean, we still can't measure patterns of neural activity on any detailed level in a human brain, you mm-hmm. know, while they're behaving, except for in some rare circumstances where we have to open up their skull for other reasons. So, yeah, obviously, you know, we could measure levels kind of gross levels of neurotransmitter more easily. We can measure genes more easily. Um, So that's, yeah, that's the only place you can kind of grasp onto. Right. I mean, I'm sure we'll look, we're obviously going to look back in, you know, 50 or 100 years at the things we're doing now and think that they're very crude and funny, but... Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that we, we wouldn't look back at these tasks and view them as the next iteration of sort of uh, behavioral assessments. Yeah. Right. Um, They're not discontinuous with that in any way, really. Yeah, I don't feel like they're fundamentally new. They're an improvement in the sense that they're like, you know, founded in more contemporary uh, theories about how the brain works. But uh, presumably as more understanding about how the brain works arrives you'll you'll iterate again yeah um, in some ways more a sort of process that way in some ways the more uh, i don't know it's not it's also not qualitatively new but the more kind of actually modern thing i think is you know stuff related to like the internet so just like the ability and you know and the fact that we have fast computers just like the use and the, the kind of will to and the realization that it's important to gather like enormous data sets and the possibility of using like a lot of computational power and computational tools from machine learning to just study that data to better understand. Yeah, I, I was I was kind of thinking that this was also kind of a good, yeah, like summary point and that to me it, it does seem like the sort of takeaway from this, the part that is like useful and and kind of more fundamentally new is this yeah gathering a big data set i guess mostly of healthy people uh on these behavioral tasks and doing uh you know data mining on that to look for behavioral cognitive behavioral phenotypes that correlate well with our understanding of of mental illness in a way that's um it feels a little bit like a paradigm shift but technically it's obviously just a scaling up so it feels a little yeah, but revolutionary, the, the scaling but it's up still lets in line. you lets you drive things with the data, right? That's that's what's always been the case in, in these kind of big scaling, like the, the, it, across fields. The scaling up lets you look at the data and see the patterns, and they just pop out more. When, I mean, like with, with the right tools, like statistical tools, the the, the, the patterns pop out a bit more um, than they do. Like if you talk to as a doctor, you talk to tens of patients about something, and and you kind of build your intuitions over years about and and then sort of qualitatively characterize these patterns right so I, it it feels like it's to me it does feel a bit more objective yeah it's and, this kind of discovery thing right the idea yeah. like you have some algorithm which is a bit like it's predefined it's kind of once it's been written into code is kind of removed from the human beings using it and you just kind of put data through it and out pops like knowledge that you can use or something. And of course, it's messier than that. And you but change that's, the parameters a bit. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. But like, like that. <laughs> pops right out. Yeah, it just pops right out. Yeah. <laughs> Someday. Okay.
Is that all? I think so. All right. Good job. See you next time. Bye. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast? Give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks.